Hello everybody, you're listening to Punks in Pubs podcast. My name is Lee Wright and I sing and play guitar for the band Monkey Mind. We are based in Newcastle, England. I'm sorry to interrupt this podcast, but I'm here to tell you about a brand new album we have coming out very soon. It's going to be available on People of Punk Rock Records, which is based in Canada. We have limited edition vinyl, CDs, T-shirts, all the good stuff. If you'd like to go and check out their page on Facebook or Instagram, they'll hook you up with the brand new Monkey Mine album. Okay, that's enough of me talking now. We're going to play one of our tracks, which is called Get Rid of Him. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you come see us live one day. Now it's over to Punks in Pubs. See you later.
My name is Liam Bird, and welcome to the Punks and Pubs podcast. This podcast, the podcast that you're listening to right now, is Punks and Pubs. I hope you have been keeping well and uh, that your spirits are high. Before we talk about my guests for this episode, I want to talk to you about beer and the glasses that you put them in. If you follow the podcast on the socials, you would have seen that I've created a Kickstarter to try and raise some funds for Punks and Pubs branded glasses. It just makes so much sense. We're a podcast that is usually set in a pub. It's genius merchandise. I don't know why I didn't do it before. Probably one of the reasons is because it's fucking expensive. Uh, I didn't realize that you had to order a minimum amount of glasses. And the glasses I would like to use are not cheap. So I'm looking to raise £600 to get some good quality glasses with the podcast logo and text on the back of the glass that says I'd rather be in a pub with a punk so if you have some cash please head on over to kickstarter.com and search for punks and pubs podcast or just click the link in the episode description probably quicker and simpler so when this episode comes out we will be in our last couple of weeks of funding so please do spread the word if you don't really have the money to pledge if you do pledge you do get some shit in return uh, if we don't raise all the funds all the money will return to the people who pledge the moral of that kind of two minutes is to give me money and i make stuff and you'll get stuff in return how about that anyway that's enough of me trying to be a salesman i'm not a very good one uh let's crack on with this episode and my guest for episode something I have forgotten. So my guest for this episode is Asian Man Record creator and founding member of bands such as the Chinkies, Bruce Lee Band and Skanking Pickle. It is the great man himself, Mike Park. Mike and I had a chat via Zoom and as most of you know, I fucking hate Zoom, but it does allow me to talk to people like Mike who does not tour anymore. So what did me and Mike talk about? Well, we talked about trying to be more environmentally friendly. Mike in real time watches the Brass Against video, uh, so you get to hear Mike watch someone piss on someone else's face. That's fun. We talk about British two-tone scar, in particular Bad Manners, who he toured with, Mike toured with. And he tells a couple of stories from that. Mike also talks about working for Fat Records for all 24 hours. And he opens up about being an Asian-American in America, past and present. Plus, loads, loads more. But before we get to my chat, I want to let you know that when Mike is talking, he sometimes hits his mic on his jumper. And it can sound like someone is scribing or scribbling really loud. I've done my best to try and ignore the noise, but it's there, so uh, apologies for that. I'll be back after the chat for a short ramble, but before that, enjoy this, my chat with Mike Park. Stand by for hours, you shake for the feet 
candle grows dim as the light starts to fade The horror that shakes on the bed that you lay Bring up some shit and then swallow it down Pray for these powers who shatter the ground Trim off the fat on the main stage affair Persons of interest command all the stairs Hey now, say goodbye to yesterday Like all podcasts, I have to pretend to say hello again. So we'll do that now. Mike, hello again. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, pal. I'm doing all right. Um, so we're, we're starting to get into the festive season. I mean, how, how are you with festivities and Thanksgiving and stuff like that? You Do you go all in or are you kind of a bit of a humbug? Uh, I like Christmas. I do enjoy Christmas. Thanksgiving just seems to come and go so fast and then... It's the start of the Christmas season. Yeah. And I do enjoy it. Do you enjoy like Halloween as well? Do you like, is that a big part? Because in the UK, we're not really massive on Halloween. It's not as huge as it is in America. Yeah. Halloween's fun too. Uh, Christmas, it's, I think a lot of people hate Christmas music. I actually really enjoy it. I love Christmas songs and I like uh, cooking. So it's a lot of cooking and listening to music and getting fat <laughs> or fatter. Is there, is there a particular like album that you like to put on when when cooking? Is there like one that you go to? Yeah, I just like like a lot of Bing Crosby. So it's a lot of like old Dean Martin, Bing Crosby era, like nineteen forties yeah. uh, Christmas music. It's it's great. It's like little, at least to my ears, little drummer boy and and stuff like rum bum 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 the Bing Crosby and. Uh, david bowie duet doing little drummer boy exactly i'm sure at some point we're going to speak a little bit about the brass that you play and that you enjoy but i i want to quickly ask did you see the brass against video the, the what the brass, Sorry? brass against have you have you seen these guys the video that kind of got put out and it's gone viral of the lead singer was on stage and the band are essentially a covers band but they're they're all brassos like trumpets trompones um sax the woman pulled someone out on the crowd and just pissed in their face have you, have you seen this video i haven't you're missing out if you want to see a woman just piss on some guy's face i'm gonna look right now so he's called so brass against brass against okay let's see oh gosh it popped up right away okay <laughs> this video may be inappropriate for some users okay I'm going to turn down the volume. I just want to see the visual. Just want to see I'm a fast, woman piss in someone's I'm, face. I'm fast forwarding. Okay. I'm at the uh, three minute mark. Oh, there it is. Holy moly. Who's the person who accepted this? I think it's just some just the random ra- guy in the crowd. That's insane. Wow. No, I haven't seen this. This came up just uh, four days ago. It's at almost three million views. <laughs> <laughs> This is crazy. Okay. Well, thank you for giving this this terrible visual. <laughs> that this this is my festive gift to you, Mike. Oh, uh, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. I mean, I, have you ever been caught on stage needing a piss? You ever just gone behind the drum kit and have a whiz? Never. You give me a bladder. I wouldn't say I'm good with it, but I've been able to make sure I was uh, relieved before I hit stage. Professional. <laughs> Some people listening to the podcast uh, might only know you as the guy who um, who created Asian Man Records uh, from the garage of your mum's home, a label that's put out music by artists such as Alkaline Trio and their solo work as well. Less Than Jake, AJJ, Bomb the Music Industry, Loris Arms, 
Joyce Manor, Big D, The Murderburgers, and Poly Six, just to name a few, and some of the bands that we hope to talk about a little bit later on. But when people like myself reel off bands like that, that you've put out on Asian Man, can you take a step back now, 25 years in the making, congrats, by the way, and go, fuck me, I've actually picked a lot of winners, and there's a lot of like work there that I can be very proud of. Yeah, of course. Uh, all the time. I, I think about, I don't know if it was luck or if I have a good ear or a little bit of both, I'm sure. But I look down, I have everything listed on my wall from the first release down to the present release. And I could just kind of just scroll down. I'm like, these are a lot of great records. Some are more well-known than others, of course, but I'm pretty proud of a majority <laughs> of the records. There's some records where I'm like, ah, not sure why I put that one out. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty excited with what I've been able to accomplish. But even the ones that you're kind of like, ah, why did I put them out? Can, can you still at least go like, at the time, I clearly saw something in this and, and kind of remind yourself of why you did it? No. <laughs> the ones that I put out that I'm ashamed of, I don't know why I did it. I usually would end up putting records out because they're my friends. And even if it was terrible, I would just do it to help them. It's a terrible way to do business. And uh, I've learned to stop doing that. So any albums you put out, we know that you're not pals. <laughs> so brutally, they're going to know that if you put out that album recently, you're not my friend. I'm such good friends with everybody that I'm, I'm really open with telling them, like, this isn't going to sell. I'm only doing this because I'm your friend. Honestly, I've told bands. There's a band called Narboots, and I said, this ain't going to sell. I'm putting it out because you're my friends. And then they made a bet with me. They're like, okay, if we break. No, I think I made a bet. I said, if this album breaks even, I'll take you guys out for like a steak dinner. And somehow it broke even, so I had to take them out for a steak. I couldn't believe it. I mean, you have to ask now, how, how do you have your steak? How, how are you cooking your steak? Maybe like uh, just medium. Yeah. I could, I could even go bloodier at medium rare. You ever done Raw. A, Yeah, I'm going to say, have you ever done like a, a blue, as they call it in Europe? I have not. But I would try it if it was if it was a really good piece, a really good cut. I try not to eat too much meat. I know it's bad for me, but uh, I still like it so much. Are you becoming more aware of like, I mean, I, we've just finished COP in the UK, and I don't know if it's that kind of news has made it to the UK. It's so America, where that's just like the, the big environmental... Oh yeah, treaty and and everyone's been talking about cutting down on dairy, cutting down on red meat, uh, and and so on and so on and so on. I have, with all the best intention, I want to do that. I really do, but I'm kind sure. of like yourself. Like I'm too selfish and I'm too greedy to 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 really cut down properly to the point where I'm probably making a dent. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this kind of trying to be good. Yeah, I mean, I've struggled with it for my entire life, especially in my activist days of uh, of being young and all your friends are vegan. I've been vegan, I've been vegetarian and then I've bounced around, but for the last decade I've been I've been a meat eater. And but I still I still try very hard to eat uh, vegan diet it's just i'm not opposed if someone is going to prepare a meat dish for me i'm not going to turn it down you've also been the creator of and members of bands such as the chinkies 
the Bruce Lee band and, and probably most well known for people listening to this Skanking Pickle. But before we get into that, I think it would be good to kind of do the traditional podcast thing of getting to know you yourself. And I know there's hundreds of podcasts out there that you've probably done where people can listen to it. So I'm hoping to try and pick up on some things that we may not have spoken about. But am I right in saying that your family emigrated to the US when you were only two months old? Yes. Where was your mum's home? Where, where, where did you emigrate from? From Seoul, Korea. Have you spoken to your family about why we left? And do you wonder also what your life might have been if you stayed in Seoul? Uh, not really. I, I, I do know their story. My mom came to San Francisco in the 60s for, uh, there was an advertisement for beauty school in San Francisco. So that's how she ended it up in in the United States. And my father was quite a scholar. He had received a full scholarship to the University of Kansas in Lawrence, which was quite a culture shock for him going from uh, Seoul, the biggest city in Korea, to a really middle of nowhere cornfield, Lawrence, Kansas, which I shouldn't say that. It's, it's a college town, but it's the surrounding area, it's, it's pretty... Uh, small town feel. So was education drummed into you at quite an early age then, seeing as quite academic? Yes. And did you enjoy that or did you kind of rebel no. against? No. <laughs> I hated it. I rebelled. 100% rebelled. I mean, I tried. I tried. But then once I got into music, I stopped. I, I felt like I know what I'm going to do. So what's the use of this? This thing called math, English, <laughs> history. Who cares? Is it something that you've appreciated as you've got older and, and become a father? Like, do you now drum it into your kids? Yeah, I just want them to be creative. I mean, I don't even care if they get their work done in school. Obviously, I want them to get all A's and all that business. But I've told them just be creative, or just make sure you're you're productive with your time. You don't. School is not the is not the recipe for success. It's it's you. So. As long as they're productive in whatever they pursue, I'll be fine with it. But they're so young now. They won't, I don't know, if young, 15 and 13. I feel, I still feel they're pretty immature and, and young. They don't know what the heck they want to do. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. At the age of 15, do you think you knew what you want? I mean, you kind of spoke very like boisterously about uh, education and fuck that. I knew what I wanted to do. Were, were you the same at 15 though? Like, did you know what you wanted to do? Yeah, I think at 15, 16, I definitely knew I wanted to be in a band at least. I don't know if I'd have the vision of where I'd be 30 years after, but at that young age, I just wanted to be in a band. I wanted to play music. I'm a white dude who lives in a predominantly white country. And I have no idea what it's like to settle in a new country, but my partner is Lebanese. And her mum brought her to the UK when she was quite young. She's spoken about uh, not fully embracing her Lebanese culture when she was younger, but kind of fully embracing it now as she got older. I wonder if that was the same for you. Did you did you embrace exact. your Korean? Yeah. No, it's the exact same as your partner. I did not appreciate it when I was younger. It was I was very much example, my school, my graduating class, there were maybe eight Asian American kids in our graduating class of a thousand mm. people. So it wasn't something I was ashamed of per se, maybe maybe a little bit when I was really young, maybe grade school. I do remember being like, man, it's not fun getting made fun of by by people. And so I had those early 
memories of it's really sad to say of, of not wanting to be Asian, wanting to be white, which is crazy. Um, but it's the truth. Yeah, my my partner said exactly the same. She she essentially. Um, try to fit in as much as she could. I mean, to the point where about she would, she was bleaching like arm hair because Mediterranean, you have quite dark hair. So like she was just trying to, she was, she was like burning herself to the point of trying to fit in. So that's crazy. Yeah. But I, I, I think, crazy. but I think it's interesting to like how, we're kind of living in a society now where we probably think we're multicultural, but I'm sure there's still young young kids who live maybe in a predominantly white area where they're just trying to fit in so badly that they're willing to do harm to themselves. Oh, sure. Without a doubt. I shadow a lot of the rocks and I wash a cold man. What a rush away. The sun in my guitar and I knew what you were doing yesterday. You broke those promises, but I'll get over it. Cause that's all guys, I'm breathing fresh air. I really don't give a shit, but I'll get mad for the next 10 years. But real life sometimes things are great. I didn't have directions, I hadn't eaten anything all day. We talked up that one and wasted only child as well or did you have brothers and sisters i had an older sister two years older and and was she as into music as as you not really she was more into she was into like some alternative music uh not really into punk more like new wave and stuff uh she did go to some punk shows i remember her going like seeing her at like the dead kennedys in seven seconds back in the 80s but she got more into like uh the jam band scene like grateful dead and fish and bands like those so so was music constantly being played in your house then clearly was like an academic house but i mean like creatively was that was there a vibe there because you said that your mom came over for a beauty school so clearly there's creativity there my dad was a natural musician but he didn't really play he sang a lot there's a lot of singing a lot of a choir from church so he was like i guess he was like a tenor almost an alto singer uh, and he was loud. That's all I remember. So they would do like, we went to a Korean church growing up and they would have like Bible studies on Fridays and like all the different families, all the kids would come. So the kids would just play and then the families would just be singing. So I remember that a lot, but also just also remember growing up singing in church ever since as far back as I can remember. So that's always been uh, in my memory, but we weren't playing instruments. There was a piano, there was a guitar, but and we were all forced to play piano. I would cry almost every week. I was very young. I would just cry. And then finally, my piano teacher just said, let's just stop. This is no fun for anybody. <laughs> it's turned into child abuse. Uh, yeah. So so that, that ended there. But yeah, it, it wasn't like there was music playing all the time. My parents, my mom actually had seen the Beatles play in San Francisco, which is crazy. Wow. I think that was the only concert she had ever gone to. I mean, what a concert. Yeah. The records we had, it was like Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. We had a couple Beatles records, uh, like the American Graffiti soundtrack. <laughs> Not much. It wasn't like this huge record collection. It was, it was pretty sparse. 
So how did you end up getting an instrument in your hand then? Like you're saying you had piano and you were crying. So clearly that didn't scar you regarding music. You, you clearly had that first to still want to pick up something. Yeah. Well, then I in fifth grade, I started playing saxophone. And I'm not even sure I loved it then. I just kind of played it and I was good at it. And so I continued for fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And then I quit. I stopped playing and then I got into ska my junior year, which was a 85 to 86. And someone asked me to like, Hey, do you want to play saxophone in our ska band? I'm like, yeah, so it's a lot different. Like being in a band versus being in like marching band or concert band. And do you remember like that moment when someone actually asked you to be in a band? Because it must be a nice feeling to be like, go oh, a band. Someone's asked me to be in a band. Wow. I don't know if I remember the exact <laughs> feeling i just know i was excited to participate with with my friends in doing something uh what i thought was super cool so you've spoken about in past interviews where about watching a documentary called dance craze uh for people who don't know it's a documentary that follows uk uk two-tone bands such as madness specials the selector body snatches the beat and bad manners and and you stated that it was this documentary that turned you on to Scar. What in particular was it about that doc that really grabbed you? Was it the fashion? Was it just the sound? I think a little bit of everything, but I think predominantly it was the sound. Uh, the movie also was the one and only experience I've ever had of people dancing at a movie. So that was really cool. And I partake. I was part of the dancing. I was up front in front of the screen and just having fun as a, 16 year old kid would and it just it was such a life-changing experience so the next day i went to the record store looking for records and i didn't have a lot of money so i think i was just like kind of looking for what was the cheapest and i found bad manners class with a k and i just probably a couple bucks on cassette but man i listened to that thing non-stop such a cool record well, I'm going to talk about Bad Manners in a second, so hold on to that thought. But what I remember from that documentary was the stubby red stripe bottles. And I and, yeah. and they've just started releasing them back in the UK now. And like red stripe, not a great beer. But for nostalgia, I, I've bought a couple and they're just, I'm not even drinking them. They're just kind of like little there, like ornaments, like little time machines to remind me of, of a time mm-hmm. that I never got to go uh and and take part in or witness but you got to tour with bad manners how was how was that it was great because buster we were traveling in like an airport shuttle vehicle it's um kind of like a i I guess like a sprinter maybe a little bit bigger than a sprinter and the back bench seat it was me and buster i don't know how i got situated next to him (laughs) But he would just uh, he would just talk to me. He would tell me stories and tell me how to be a front man. He was an awesome education. And so and I was just such a big fan of the music, just being able to hear those songs every night, perform them, just dance. It's just like, you know, you play your lines and just dance. It was just a blast. And I got paid so little and I did not care. And did you learn how to do his head thing? Like he has he has the kind of, he can really bob his head up and down with his shoulders moving. Like it's really unique. <laughs> That's his shtick. <laughs> let, him, let him keep his, 
Magic. And that tong. What a tong. You grew up in the 80s where in the UK, two-tone ska was falling out of the mainstream and bands like The Smith, Joy Division, The Cure was finding a larger audience. And in the US, it Mm -hmm. seems like hair metal bands and hip-hop was breaking into the mainstream with hardcore punk in the underground. Why was it that these kind of music didn't grab you in the same way that ska seemed to do? It did. I was a huge Smiths fan. Still am. I, I used to listen and Depeche Mode too. I loved all that stuff. Uh, XTC. So a lot of the, the music coming out of England from the 80s, that was huge for me. It wasn't such a um, defined movement as two-tone. It's ska is such an underground phenomenon where you could just gravitate with other people in this community and you just automatically get along. I could go anywhere. I could go to Mexico and if I know there's this if I run into a rude boy or a rude girl, we, even if we can't speak the same language, we have this common bond and we're like immediately drawn to each other. And just um, it's a special kind of feeling where a band like Depeche Mode is so big. You know, you might meet a fellow Depeche Mode fan, but it's not the same. You know what I mean? You don't have that same camaraderie. If you run into someone who's into bad manners, it's going to be a much less likely scenario yeah versus running into somebody who likes the smiths or depeche mode so was that the reason why you it really gravitated to you when you were younger then were you finding all these kind of other kids who enjoyed scar enjoyed specials and 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 and, and bands like that and you kind of gravitated towards them because you had something in common was that was that the main reason why why you really followed this path of scar music I don't know if that was the main reason. I I just like the music and my friends like the music. And so we like to dress up. We like to wear shark skin suits and uh, pork pie hats. And we would go to shows and just, and just skank. <laughs> <laughs> We'd go to dances too. They would have like these underground dances close to where I live that were named after the squeeze song, Cool for Cats. And it was just like DJ spinning like mod, soul, reggae, ska, rock steady. It was awesome. And did it feel like your unique thing? Like they, it, it was like, because obviously, as I said at the time, like hair metal and, and hip hop was just breaking out in such a big way. And you you found this basement where they're playing all this amazing music where you've got, as you've spoken about, like a, a group of people who are just all kind of just there for, for dancing and, and just messing around. Like, did that feel something that was so new, unique to you that if you had, if it became mainstream, like it did uh, again in a few years' time, was it like, oh, no, I, like, I don't want that to be taken away from me. Like, this is something that's mine. I, I didn't feel that way. I did like that it was this kind of underground scene, but... I wasn't opposed to bands doing well, especially because I was in a band that was, you know, trying to get more popularity. So that would be hypocritical if I said anything different. So there seems to be a scar revival at the moment. Bands like the Skints have been kind of flirting with the mainstream in the UK and the specials this year topped the album chart again with protest song in the US. You got the interrupters, uh, scar to network, uh, cat bait, personal favorite of mine is bad operations from new orleans your bandmate jeff rosenstock re-released his album no dream uh to become a scar cover uh scar dream and i mean you put out an album collaboration arm scar scar against racism compilation that sold pretty fast 
this isn't all statement. However, you did also say that the best thing that Scar can do is stay away from majors if this Scar revival does start becoming mainstream again. Do you st- do you stand by that? Do you do you think that if a mainstream industry or label kind of starts doing what they did back in 94, 95, 97, that they'll just kill it dead? 100%. It's way healthy. Even before the, the boom of the 90s, that was a healthy scene in, in the early to mid 90s. And if it, if it had continued on that path of being this kind of underground scene that is popular, it would have flourished and kept doing well. It was just anytime something is oversaturated, no matter what it is, any style of music, it's just going to create garbage. And that's what happened with ska. Every single high school kid who played in the marching band started a ska band. So you would have any given high school would have five different bands. And every weekend, there are just so many shows, so many teen centers, ska shows that just the kids did not know how to play the music. It was like a very bastardized version. So a lot of the, the music was just watered down and just seen as corny. And that's why you see a lot of parody of ska, like in uh, popular culture, of kind of making fun of this uh, carnival music, which it's not. It's the, Historically, it's a very political working class music and it's just what mainstream has done. Oh, 100%. I, I think in the UK, like, I, I don't think it's an overstatement that, that the two-tone movement really did help to bridge divides between uh, white people and Afro-Caribbean people uh, in the UK with with that music. It kind of showed on on the dance floors that like integration doesn't like is possible. Like y- this can happen, and and unfortunately, like you said, I, I think there is a case that people, whenever they do t- talk about Scar, and this ain't a dig at Robic Fish, they're one of my favorite bands to see live, but they they'll just put on beer song and go, well, this is Scar, and it's like, well, actually, no, like this is a Scar song. But just yeah. like scratch a little deeper, you'll you'll really see like the real meaning of of this music genre. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I I hate that people rag on Real Big Fish because Aaron Barrett loves ska. Like he's the real deal. Like it's not it wasn't something in passing where it's like, oh, I'm gonna become popular. He loves ska. He's like he's a lifer. So and they do get a lot of shit, which is unfortunate, but um I'm here to say real deal. The guy likes ska and he should get instead of uh, these critics, he should be applauded for continuing to do it when nobody was during the dead years of ska. They were one of the few bands that continued to tour. Well, I can remember going to watch Less Than Jake and them talking about that they had to sleep on bedroom floors. And this is like you wouldn't think a band like Less Than Jake in, in I think it was early 2000s when I saw them that that they would have to still sleep on bedroom floors. But they're saying like... No way. There's no way they were sleeping on bedroom floors in the early 2000s. I'd bet my life on it. Ah, oh, liars. Liars. I would bet my life on... Early 2000s, them sleeping on bedroom floors, there's not a chance. <laughs> Zero. They definitely slept on bedroom floors when they were starting, but not in 2000. No way. Where's that interview? It's not an interview. You did it on stage. They were talking about it on stage in Astoria, and they they were basically saying thank you so much for coming out to see us. Uh, when we were in the, when we were in America, we were back to sleeping on 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 floor on people's floors. Like it's no way. God, good for them for saying that. That's, <laughs> that makes a good uh, good banter, but 
No, no way. Are you in the Laura Jane Grace uh, camp of bring back up Ivy, or do you think we should just let them be and just be grateful that we had it? Sure. I'd love it. I'd love it. I just, I'd love it because I know it would help the two members of Operation Ivy who are not financially stable. It would help them quite a bit. You know, Tim and Matt don't need it. They don't need it. They're in a massive band. But Jesse and Dave Mello need it. So I hope it happens. about yourself then with skanky and pickle um it's a band that kind of you you toured and toured and toured you never seem to get over the precipice of like the less than jakes and the real big fishes is that a time that you look back now and go actually like we played that how we wanted to play it or do you look back and go well you know what like i wish we made some more riskier decisions or 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 anything kind of in that mold no, not at all. I mean, the reason we didn't get as big as those bands because we broke up. <laughs> well, that's why. Ninety six. Yeah. So that's the reason. If we had put out another record, it could have been a t- totally different story. But when we broke up, it, right when Scott was blowing up, the worst time to break up is when we broke up, and I knew it. But I was done. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I'm totally cool with that, and I have no regrets, and I'm stoked for. Less than Jake and Real Big Fish and No Doubt, even all those bands. Well, I mean, Mighty, the, Mighty. these are all bands that that opened that 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 yeah opened for yourself. You also had Sublime as well, who who you played with, and, and a band that's kind of gone down in legendary station status as well. When when you're playing with these bands, do do you see it? Do you go? I fully understand why these guys completely like shot off. Sure, those bands and a lot more that didn't shoot off that I felt like should have. I don't know why band A does better than band B, but there's, there are so many great bands from that third wave and all the ones that did succeed, they totally deserved it. They were great bands and they toured, did cool stuff. So yeah, I, I totally understand. When, when you played with Sublime, did you get bitten by Louis the dog? I, I interviewed his sister and she was talking about the dog Louis would run around venues and just bite people like it wasn't a good dog yeah he never bit me and i i had many run-ins with the dog like he would be at all the shows but he was always nice to me (laughs) (laughs) i just like that they would roll in because they were such a big posse they would just roll in 10 deep dogs in tow it was cool (laughs) it's a it's they come from such a different scene but they're really they were always nice to us we and we had played quite a bit of together we probably played at least like 20 shows together back in the in the day so that dog they love that <laughs> they love that dog brad loved that dog you said earlier on that you 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 knew that music was your way in uh, what you wanted to do and you like you said eventually you felt tired touring with with skanking pickle but during the tide time where actually you were like this is this is what i'm gonna do with this band we're gonna continue going um, is it right that your mum would cry 
because of the career choices that you've made and that she was oh, worried yeah. about you. And, 100%. And no one wants to make their mum cry. So was there any point where you're like, oh, fine, I'll just, I'll, I'll do something that will make you proud? No, I felt bad that she was so upset by it, but that didn't affect my choices. Even after I stopped touring, when I decided to do the record label, she was still like, why? Why don't you go back to school and, you know, get your degree? You're young enough to still be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer or something that's going to have some more stability. But once I started doing well, then she stopped. <laughs> she stopped nagging me. Did she ever go, you can't use my garage. You need to go to college. Like this is no, I'm putting my foot down. No. And the thing is, I don't even need, I didn't even need to use the garage. I could have done it somewhere else, but I did it because I wanted it. I, well, I saved a ton of money, but it's also, I knew it would be enjoyable for my mom because she's a people person. She likes people around. So that was one of the reasons just so there'd always be people around that she could talk to and, hang out with the bands stuff like that was she one of those people who would always have food ready for people if they're coming around so it doesn't matter if you've got 10 doesn't matter if you've got two doesn't matter if you've got 15 you know mum's got it sorted like you don't have to worry about it mum's got everyone covered in her younger years yes i think as she got older she'd usually take bands out to, to a restaurant oh that's so sweet that she'll take people out <laughs> Um, before we move on, I want to ask about um, issues that you faced as a, as a band touring. I mean, you've told the story where actually you've opened up, where, where you've opened up about being the only minority in a ska band in the 90s and having a guitarist who was openly gay. And you spoke about having eye-opening, the, the eyes were open when you're touring away from kind of the West Coast into more rural areas, particularly the South of, of North America. What was it like realizing that the shows whereabouts you want to create unity, there wasn't unity there. There's a show that you kind of mentioned, but you didn't really talk about in Baton Rouge in Louisiana. How was that? Because obviously you're talking about unity and, and you want to create this 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 feeling of what you spoke about before. Like you go to a Scar show, doesn't matter who's there, everyone's there together. But you're playing a show and you're realizing that this isn't the case everywhere. Like The people who are going to come and try and enjoy my music don't like me just because of the color of my skin. Well, that one was a weird one. So the, the, the show you're talking about in particular is a place called the Art Bar. Baton Rouge, Louisiana, not many people there. We're talking maybe like 15 people, which uh, eight of them were skinheads. And, you know, I just kind of um, thought, well, they must be sharp skinheads because they were dancing. They were just having fun. Like we were playing. It was nothing. It was is when we started getting political and started talking about like racism is when it turned south, which is then it was like, uh Oh, what's going on here? You know, not even small town that happened in California too. We have run-ins with skinheads in, in the melting pot of California. It is a problem or at least in, in if we're talking about like underground music with like the skinhead culture. It's been a problem since, since the beginning. And not just in small towns, but in the big cities too. And do you, and do you think it was that mindset that kind of stopped people, Asian Americans, uh, maybe going on to to create bands? Like if they, they they see people like yourself on stage just getting shit, and there's, there might be an, 
an, an Asian American in the crowd watching this and like, fuck that. Why am I going to go on stage and just get that abuse? And I'm all right. I'm, I'm just going to not start a band. No, because if they saw it like in a small setting, it was so, that was like a surreal moment, like out of a movie almost because it's so there were so few people there and it's just like so in your face, like right there. Whereas when we start getting bigger and let's say there'd be 500 people, a thousand people, and then a couple boneheads in the audience, them being so outnumbered kind of showed, I felt like the idea of community, how people can can band together and push out those people. And that's what you have to do. I, I've always preached like this nonviolent mission statement, but it that's changed too. I feel like violence is acceptable in certain in certain uh, instances. I, I think it's the only way you could show some people that they're not welcome. Uh, and that's a big departure of what my original thoughts were in my young adult years. Uh, I'm all for it. Like if someone's going to come in and attack me or people who look like me just because the way I look, I'm ready to fight back, which is crazy for me to say in my fifties, but I'm, I'm at that point where, yeah, I'll fight back now. As a society, we like to believe that we've moved on and moved forward regarding race relations. But I know in the UK, we, that there's been Asian students who have been attacked by mindless thugs who think that's the way they can battle COVID. Yeah. I mean, as a man who's lived in a country, who's living in a country whereabouts, you, you've got an ex-president who incited race hate and, and called for white people essentially to, to rise up and, and claim their, their country back. Do you think we've moved forward or do you think actually we're, we're, we're not? Like we're still at the same place. We've just got the internet. A little bit of both. I do feel that people feel brave they feel brazen to voice their racist rhetoric because it's something that is supported supported in and the thing is anybody anybody who's who is called a racist in their mind they don't think it's racist you can't by just having this stupid battle of you're racist. No, I'm not racist. It, it doesn't go anywhere. It's those ideas are instilled in people at an early age. It's not going to go away. It's just, it's just the reality of things. And to be honest, everyone has racist tendencies. If anyone says I am perfect, they're lying. There are stereotypes that people just, it's been driven into our minds. So we're an imperfect being the human race. So even myself, you know, I'm not claiming to be this guru of peace and unity. I try my best, but I have flaws. And what I try to do is just do the best I can and, and keep learning from my mistakes. It's the, I don't like also the woke culture of 2021 where people are just attacking the left is attacking the left the right is attacking the right. It just it just seems crazy to me. And maybe it is because it's so easy to access these stories immediately. But I feel like things were better 20, 30 years ago. I feel there was a lot more community and a lot more people striving for, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, I, I guess, I, especially in like punk, 
and and uh and Scott, I felt there was just like uh it just felt more I think maybe because I was so young, it just felt I felt uh optimistic. I felt hopeful. Now at my age, I still love the punk and ska community. I feel like people are doing such great things, but I'm not as hopeful anymore. So I think that's the difference is that hopefulness of my youth is gone. And I feel a lot more pessimistic and that's troublesome. And that's just me being honest. I always try to be an optimist, but uh, if I'm going to be honest, no, I, I, I do see like a, a grayness to our society. And it's, it's just, um, it, like you said, it could definitely be because of social media. This house is full of ears, but I can't talk to anyone. They've heard this one a thousand times. Most exciting thing I do, hang halfway on a third floor window. Maybe throw lit cigarettes down, and maybe I'll catch fire. Something warm to hold me, something pure to burn away the darkness that hides inside. So let's talk a, a bit more about Asian Man then, because it, it's not your first label. Some people might not know this, but you did a collective uh, label called Dill, and you put out a lot of your, the Skanking Pickle albums through Dill. From from reading a lot of interviews, it sounds like you felt quite underappreciated at the time with the label, doing a lot of the work. And did it come to a head when you wanted to put out a Less Than Jake album on Dill? But am I right in saying the rest of the collective didn't see what you saw? Was that kind of the tipping no, point for you? No, I just knew they were wrong. Because I was doing all the business anyways, they just kind of let me do what I want. But once they started seeing the business doing well, that's when they're like, well, I'd like a piece of this pie. And so they were bringing in bands like, oh, what about this band? And in my mind, I was like, why? Why would you do this? It was, especially at the time when Scott was doing so well, I felt like, this is the time, and especially because we were, we were one of the pioneering ska bands of that third wave. Like, why wouldn't we just work with bands we've met on tour? We've met all these great bands. Let's continue to do that. So at what point did you realize, actually, that like ska is starting to push through? Like, people are going to shows. Like, you, you spoke about the, the, um, that Skank and Pickles broke up completely the wrong time, but you had to do it for yourself. But... Like, even at that point, did you realize that more people were coming to your shows and, and that there was an audience that was growing? Oh, yeah. So, like, that last year, 95, 96, we were drawing well over a 1,000 people in so many markets all across the United States. And you got to remember, we had no label. This, we did everything ourselves. The only other band that was doing that were the Toasters. Everyone else was on a major label. So when you go from comparing a band like the Boss Tones who are on a major label, how can you compete in terms of a band who has no idea what they're doing? Never made it. We never made a music video. We just toured. That's all we knew what we could do was we could play live. 
And so I don't even know what your question was. I'm going off. Topic, it, was, but... it was talking about kind of seeing the, the, the curve that was happening before you jumped off with the band to go and start uh, right. your own label. Yeah, it was buzzing. It was buzzing big. And, and it was even buzzing before that. Like I would say even when Two-Tone died, when Two-Tone ended and those bands had broken up, we saw them get back together and do reunion shows in the early to mid nineties. Like I remember when the selector came, it had been 10 years since they played and they came to the U S it was massive. There was well over a thousand people at their shows in the Bay area. And I saw them in LA too. There was like 1500 people. So, you know, all the shows were sold out. And the same thing with bad manners When bad manners came, all the shows were packed. It was crazy. And then the special beat came. So members of the beat and, the specials, that was that was the biggest of every band. And they were playing theaters. They were playing like 2,000 plus cap theaters when Ska was, before that third wave boom had, had exploded. And so it had always been, because it was underground, they'd never lost that fan base. And that's why a band like the specials, even in 2021, you can think of bands from England who had huge hits in the 80s. But if they toured now, no one would care. Like a band like Kaja Gugu, who's going to see, you know, you know what I mean? Or even like ABC, these bands had massive hits in the U.S. If they played in the States, it would be all like nostalgia, like package tours of like the 80s featuring so-and-so and so-and-so. But the specials can hold their own. They can still, and so can Madness. They can play huge theaters in the U.S. and just pack it in. So you created Asian Man in '96, and you, you spoke about seeing other musicians in other interviews, um, such as Ian McKay uh, with Discord, Fat Mike with Fat Wreck, and Brett Gerswitz with Epitaph, all creating their own labels. When you decided to kind of go at it your own, you kind of you said like you were practically running a deal, but. Were you reaching out to your peers and asking for support and go, what are you doing? Kind of learn from them and go, well, I can, I can incorporate this in Asia, man. Or was it kind of learn from your own mistakes and don't ask? Learn from my mistakes. I did intern at Fat for one day. I went to Fat for one day. I went to everybody who worked there and asked them questions. I said, what do you do? And they would tell me and I was in my mind like, oh, I know what to do. <laughs> so that was it. I, and I, I know like the people are still there from that era. This is, this is probably like 24 years ago that I did this and they still remember it. It's like something they talk about. They had talked about for years of, of me coming in there for one day and then getting the info I needed and just going, see ya. <laughs> did you at least pocket some records before you left? I don't think so. They might have given me some stuff. I just can't. I can't remember that. So, in the early days, were you were you competitive by nature? Like, were you seeing what what Fat was doing? Let's use Fat for instance, and going, I I, I can do better than this. Like, come on, like with your bands going, kind of no, not never not better. I just thought I could do it. So it's never been about like I can be better or bigger because that's definitely not what I was pushing for i just wanted to be able to have an outlet to, to put out my own music so it was more of a them showing me that i could do it. so it was it was inspirational like okay i can do this and what was the best lesson that you learned either someone telling you or just learning it from yourself like distributing 
music? Don't trust people. <laughs> <laughs> Money up front. Yeah, the... So in the history of Asia, man, we've had three distributors go bankrupt on us. And that was More Damn Records. And then it was a Lumberjack and then No Idea Records. Actually, four in this company called Nail. The biggest hit was uh, when More Damn Lumberjack went out of business. And then No Idea was a big hit for us, too. So we've, we've probably been, I'd say, at least $100,000 plus that money that was owed to us that we never got to see. Uh, it's a lot of money. It's it's uh, that is the biggest part of the music business. I hate is just getting shorted. <laughs> Companies just not paying you. That's frustrating. I mean, I worked as a freelancer for quite a while, and having to chase payment is just a pain in the ass, man. No one, no one needs it. Exactly. Um, so, if you don't mind me talking about a couple of bands that you had on, on the label, I mean, one of my favorite bands growing up was Alkaline Trio, even to the point I got the school tattoos on me as a youth. Um, so, like, at Asian Man, you put out um, For Your Lungs Only uh, and then releasing God Damn It and Maybe I'll Catch Fire. What was it about Trio that, that stood out to you and, and that you, they signed with you and also they stayed with you for quite a while as well, putting out those albums? I don't know if you know this, so maybe I'll catch fire. They actually were offered a major label deal and they turned it down against my advice. They turned it down because um, they just said, you know, we just, we're not ready for that. We just want to put another record out with you. I'm like, Oh, great. And thank God they did. My God. <laughs> album helped me out so much. I almost passed on it. To be honest, they had set me for your lungs only on a cassette tape. And I was so busy at the time. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And, and I just kept listening to it and just like, kind of like starting to fall in love with the music. I was like, I, I can't not do this. But my initial thought was I was too busy, which would have been, if I had passed on that, I would go out on a limb and say, Asian man wouldn't even be here today. If I did, if I had passed on Alpine Trio, because it would have been, devastating financially for me to not have had that experience so how much do you kind of look back on like trio the i mean you pretty much just said the trio would have like helped asian man stay 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 kind of moving i mean how, close, yeah. how, how much does it feel for you then that when they do do their solo projects they come back to you and they want to work with you because clearly that states that a you're a good guy and b that you'll look after them and that's so vital i think in music because like you said, like there's a lot of shits in music, music industry, and trying to find someone to trust is very rare. Yeah, I, it's cool. I mean, we're just, we're good friends, especially like me and Dan are just like, he's one of my best friends. We, we, we talk all the time and that his like latest solo album. I mean, that was all, that was all me. I put that thing together and I was the one who pushed them to like, you know what, try to find a bigger label. Even Epitaph, when Epitaph said, I'm going to put, we, you know, we really would like to, Mr. Brett was kind of like, isn't this Mike Parks thing? Didn't he put this together? And then Dan had to kind of explain it to him. And I, it just confuses a lot of people. They don't understand, like, who in their right mind would take business away from himself? But for me, it's like, I want what's best for the artist. If that means them leaving, then yeah, please leave. I want you to do well, you know, this is, I do things way different. I'm way smaller and I want to be small. 
Well, I mean, I've heard of Jeff Rosenstock talk about that you told him, no, like, I don't want to put out your next album. Like, do it yourself, make you money. Yeah, I mean, I was supposed to put out the first album on Side One Dummy. We were getting ready to put it out. And then Side One Dummy had come in and Jeff called me and said, here's what's going on. I said, yeah, try it. Let's see what happens. You know, thank God he did. It helped quite a bit. He met a lot of people who um, would never have heard his music otherwise. He came in at a perfect time when Side One Dummy put out his first record. So another band that I do want to touch on very quickly, and it's probably not the one that made you, I'm not sure, even any money. And, and that's Poly6. Because yeah. they are a band that I have loved for years and I've been fortunate enough that I've watched them quite a few times. And I don't think you realise how big they are until you actually... I was, I was I went to Japan for my 30th and I went to one of their shows and it's like an arena show. Like, it was huge. I mean, how did that come about? How did you end up working with Poly6? So I was in Japan. We had an office. I, I opened an office in Tokyo. Uh, I was trying to do Asian Man Japan. And so when I was there, one of the, and I'm proud of myself because even though I don't speak Japanese, I was, I was going for it. Like I was setting up meetings with, with different distributors, um, different record labels, uh, publishing companies. So just one of these distributors I found who I really became friends with, they were, they would just show me their bands. And one of them was Poly6. And I was like, oh my God. This is the, I got to work with this band. And so that's how that came about. How do you see kind of the, because the, Japan's market, music market, again, some people might not know, it's massive. Like, I think it's the second biggest globally. So, like, how do you find working in a completely different business industry to, I'm guessing, what's done in America? That sucked. It sucked. <laughs> it's the business part sucked. I, it sucked so bad I stopped because I didn't want to sour my, love of japan because i love japan so much once i started doing business in japan i'm like oh this place sucks so i stopped doing asian man japan because i didn't want it to taint my love for the country (laughs) i mean what what sucks so badly though like was it just the ethics of it or it's got to go it's you can't even explain it impossible (laughs) to explain go to japan try to start a business and see how they do things and what you're used to i was trying to take my business ethics of asian man and do it in japan and it's the total opposite. Everything I do is not what they do in Japan. I'm now interested more about that. Let's face it, your back catalogue at Asian Man is mind-blowing. And I'm guessing you could make a tiny living just re-releasing if you wanted to. I mean, what's pushing you to keep finding new music and, and putting out new music? Because like you said, most most albums make a loss. So, I mean, why do you continue to have that first to, to, to help bands and, and put out their, their music? Well, I like, uh, it's more fun working with bands from the Genesis. Um, I don't, you know, a lot of these labels now, they're just doing like bands that were successful and then put out their new album after they get dropped from a major because they already have a built-in audience, et cetera, et cetera. That's no fun. I want to work with bands who are like new bands going on their first tour. Like this year we had two bands go on their first tour. So it was awesome to see. It's awesome to experience. That's fun for me. It's not fun seeing people my age 
saying, oh, here's my band. I'm like, I don't give a shit. I do give a shit, but I was like, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to work. You're, when you're 40 years old, you have responsibilities. It's different. You can't just leave and go on tour. When you're 19, you can just leave and go on tour. And that's what it's, that's what's, what it's about. It's for me to use the knowledge that I've gained over the years and kind of like instill that, uh, those ideas onto the next generation and help them kind of navigate this tricky, tricky world. Well, talking about the next generation then, like, would you like your kids to take up the mantle of Asian man and, and, and push that forward if they, sure. if they felt the need? If they felt the need, sure. At this point, they don't think care less. But if they did feel the need, I was told to do it. And what would you be, again, what's your number one advice to them then if they if they decided to take it? Was it get your money first? I would, I don't know what my advice would be. I'd probably be like, don't fuck this up. <laughs> I built this. Don't fuck yeah. it up. Yeah. Come on. What you got coming out on your label that, that you're excited about and that other people should probably be excited about? We have... Coming out, so think. Uh, I have a new Bruce Lee band, full length, coming out. Uh, hopefully, like the first single will come out. It's done. It just everything takes so long to uh, get manufactured onto the vinyl format. But uh, that's this is a really good record. It's uh, it's my own band, so I'm probably <laughs> not the best judge to say if it's good or not. But I think it's really good. I'm excited for people to hear it. Uh, we have a, this band called Small Crush that I think is fabulous. I think they're going to be massive. Family band called the Moore Family Band. All these siblings from San Jose, they play this kind of pop punky style of, uh, of punk rock, and they're really good. I just a, little, a lot of cool stuff. Always stuff coming out on Asian Man. And then slowly but surely trying to get all the back catalog back in stock, which is now at 370 records so it's as you can imagine it's quite difficult and quite expensive yeah teddy swift and adele need to stop making albums because they're, they're kind of stealing everyone's vinyl space it seems to be yeah crazy <laughs> um, so the last question from me is like so you've got a free night no family obligations no work commitments and you want to go for a beer yeah. who, who are you calling i'd say like my best friend is this guy chris candy he's in la uh, so we're six hours apart, but me and him, he's like my favorite guy to just hang out with. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for yeah. giving up your time, pal. This is really enjoyable. And uh, I look forward to releases and hopefully Bruce Lee Band is over in Europe and uh, we can come watch you at a show. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. But... <laughs> <laughs> But you can watch it on videos, maybe. YouTube. I'm done touring. My touring days are over. Done. Done. All right, Mike. <laughs> Thank you so much, pal. This is great. Thank you. Yeah, take care. You too. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It had burned a hole so wide They could not piece it back again Chipped away at random lies The power coming to an end Must be getting hot down there You're melting faster as the Thank you to Mike for giving up his time. Make sure you go over to Asian Man Records and check out his stock. As he said, he is replenishing it. So there's uh, there's stuff in there that you've probably looked for before. 
he didn't have it and he probably has it now uh, he probably won't actually because no one can get fucking vinyl at the moment thanks Adele uh, all music you've heard in this interview is also on Asian Man so if you do desperately want it go to Bandcamp and get it digitally thank you so much to this episode's sponsors I Am Monkey make sure you go give them some love link in the episode description once again thank you for joining me for this month's episode next month will be our Christmas special Till then, if you're going to a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. Go over to the Kickstarter and go and pledge and help us get some Punks and Pubs branded pint glasses. Okay, be well. Bye-bye.